Well, welcome to another episode of the Grazing Sheep Podcast. I'm your host, Big Tom Perkins, along with Dr. Cameron Miley. And again today, we're joined by Dr. Andrew Weaver. And uh, those two just got back from uh, ASI convention. I guess one of the things we should have mentioned, what does ASI stand for? American Sheep Industry. There you go. And I guess on that note, if you're a member of your state association, then you're also a member of the National Association or ASI, as long as that state association is a member of ASI. So get your memberships in, join your state association. It's a two for one, and uh, it'll support your your state programs and opportunities there at the local level, and it'll also uh, support sheep producers across the country. So, uh, not not to call out the east, but uh, for those of you that are raising sheep uh, east of the Mississippi River, uh, come members of your state association, and uh, let's bump up our numbers so uh, we have a larger representation. Yeah, and you also get a free monthly magazine. Sheep Industry News, it's a, it's a pretty good resource. Yep. So what did you guys learn at ASI? Yeah, so we talked in the last episode, kind of the recap, and we made it a whole day into into that program. It wasn't even a full day. It was just the evening program is what the last day. two-hour meeting. Yeah, that was the last episode, um, and, which was good. There was a lot of... A lot of discussion that stemmed from that, uh, a lot of thought-provoking just questions that that came out of that. Uh, and so then the following day, uh, joint track, so what they call PERC, uh, which is Production, Education, uh, Research Committee, and, uh, or is it Producer? Production education. Produ- okay. Okay. I got it right. We got, we got it right. So uh, I was in that group for, for most of the afternoon. Uh, some interesting topics certainly there and uh, had to moderate a, a panel dealing with solar grazing that maybe we can get into today. And then, Andrew, there was both a, a genetic session in the a.m. as well as in the afternoon, correct? Yeah. So, um, the morning started off, there was a, an animal health, the animal health, uh, committee, uh, they had their meeting in the morning, which was a packed house. Uh, it was standing room only. Uh, and then that transitioned to the morning genetics stakeholder session, um, which was a couple hours leading up to lunch again, packed house. And then after lunch, uh, kind of splits up and the perk meeting and the genetic stakeholders, um, occur at the same time. Uh, we had some, uh, some folks go back and forth there between the afternoon sessions, but, uh, you know, jam packed schedule and lots of good speakers. And, um, I guess one of the, a common complaint that I got it last year too. And again, this year is, uh, you know, how can we have the perk meeting and genetic stakeholders at different times so that we can go to everything. Um, and unfortunately there's just so many hours in the day, um, and we're trying to get everything in and it becomes a challenge. Uh, but I guess it's a good thing to have that kind of demand and, and interest and folks that, that want to attend these sessions. So, yeah. And so, did you have any takeaways from the morning session? I know, uh, sat through, I, I had missed the health discussion uh, and heard a lot of good things about that, that presentation, that discussion that followed. Uh, and then the genetic 
presentation that followed uh, given by Dr. Ron Lewis there from Nebraska, uh, that room was squelter. I mean, it was toasty in there. And it, it was kind of comical. I, I didn't retain as much information as I had hoped because uh, I was standing right in front of the door and there were about, I don't know, I 50 people that walked in and out to try try to find a spot. I mean, we crammed crammed way more people in that room than what it should have been holding. So we were fortunate the fire marshal wasn't around. Um, I mean, I was about to spontaneously combust, but uh, it was picked up a couple couple of good things. And then um, it, was there any takeaways from that, Andrew? I'm assuming you were in that room. You might have actually had a chair to sit in. Uh, was there anything I was fortunate in there? to have a chair? Um, yeah, uh, it was good. Uh, yeah, I'll speak on. I mean, the, the health form um, was great. Um, I won't speak too much detail about that. Um, I also got tied up with some stuff and ended up showing up a little bit late to that. Um, but on the genetic side, um, like you mentioned, Dr. Lewis uh, was the first speaker, and uh, we had asked him to kind of take us back to the basics with uh, the tools that we have uh, for making genetic improvement. We a lot of us like to kind of take things to a, a pretty high level and what's the latest and greatest thing out there. Uh, and we felt going after last year, going into this year, that with the number of new folks that are getting involved, um, we were concerned that maybe we were losing those folks, um, that we were we we're talking about things that that maybe um, are more, you know, producers that have been doing this for 10, 15 years are more accustomed to. Uh, we wanted to make sure that everyone was on the same page. And so I thought Dr. Lewis did a really great job uh, explaining uh, you know, the definitions of a breeding value and, and the breeder's equation and how uh, the the different factors that go into actually making genetic progress and how all of those things can work together. Uh, and I think one of the uh, another good thing he kind of brought to light that we often forget about as purebred breeders uh, is he wrapped up that talk uh, with a, a dis short discussion on crossbreeding and the opportunities with crossbreeding uh, from both an individual and maternal heterosis standpoint. Uh, there's there's a lot to be gained through crossbreeding that uh, many of us who focus on on purebred production, um, you know, sometimes forget is out there. So uh, I think that was really great to reiterate. Um, and that actually it was we did not intend for it to be a segue into the next talk, but it actually worked out really well because uh, after that we had a, a panel of producers to talk about the return on investment uh, using genetic selection technology. Uh, and the first speaker up was a Western range producer uh, who uses uh, high growth Suffolk rams on his uh, his Western use, his, his Rambolet target use. And uh, just, you know, he really expressed, like further emphasized the value that crossbreeding can bring uh, to a program and what he's experienced personally um, and the value that those crossbred animals have. So yeah, and uh, not only good. uses, not only uses those rams, but has taken the jump at producing those sheep, producing yes. those suffixes in-house, um, and is committed to that additional labor of managing that separate flock. And I think, I mean, I it's kind of a cool story because we, yeah, I think we oftentimes, you know, have things we forget about. Uh, that industry pyramid, and we have like the elite breeders up at the top that are raising 
the most elite of elite seed stock. And then we have the multipliers below them, which which take that those elite genetics and simply make more of them uh, and, and produce large quantities of rams to go into commercial operations. And those commercial producers obviously are per- producing feeder lambs or slaughter lambs that are going to go on uh, down the supply chain. Uh, but essentially, he's taking, he's buying in rams from what an individual that I would consider to be an elite breeder uh, in the Suffolk breed, um, the top end of the Suffolk growth genetics, uh, buying in those rams, uh, putting those rams in his environment, um, breeding those rams to a group of Suffolk ewes uh, that, that he owns. And so essentially he's acting as a multiplier for, for himself, um, taking those Suffolk genetics and, and you know, buying just a few really elite rams, multiplying those genetics that are in an environment where they can be adapted to that range setting. Because uh, a lot of problems, you know, we, we feed these these rams a lot of, uh, you know, very nutrient-rich feeds uh, in the east, and then we send them west uh, into a range setting, and, and they're maybe just not adapted to it. Um, it's it's similar to maybe what we see where we we take a Katahdin ram from up north, and we bring them down south and turn them loose, and uh, we run into problems uh, just from a, a heat stress and, and parasite standpoint. Um, not saying it happens every time, but it, it can happen. Um, so he multiplies those suffix genetics and then turns those rams that he's raised in house, uh, turns those loose on his his fine wool use and uh, can really see a benefit in terms of, of ram productivity, breeding capacity, longevity, uh, because those rams have been developed in an environment. They've been developed in the same environment that they're being asked to work in. Uh, but at the same time, he's taking advantage of bringing in those elite genetics to that multiplier flock. So pretty cool story there. Um, yeah, and then had two Katahdin producers on on the panel, one from Missouri, one from Ohio. Uh, and then and those were kind of our intermediate size flocks. And really good representation just across the breed. And then I cannot remember the gentleman who sat there on the far right, who's, again, another range operator. Yeah, Vance, Vance uh, Broadbent. In a uh, number of views in that operation. Yeah, I don't quote me on it. I think it's somewhere in in the ten thousand range. Um, right, and they run some cows as well. So a very very large operation. Um, that uh, you know, they've been you know again at the forefront of using um, you know genetics to advance their flock uh, and and make improvements there and. Um, obviously they're contributing a, a large quantity of lambs to, uh, our, our, uh, our cheap industry. So, um, it was great to have him on the panel. Um, we had a couple of Katahdin producers as well. We wanted, we wanted representation from both the East and the West. Um, and so, uh, it was great to have, uh, have, you know, that diversity there. Um, and it, my takeaway from that panel was, I wish this would have been like a whole afternoon session. Uh, because we barely cracked the surface uh, in 45 minutes. Uh, yeah. There was there was so much more to discuss. There, there were questions that I had. Uh, there were questions that uh, uh, were out there that we just simply ran out of time to address. Uh, and so, uh, you know, maybe we can build on that in the future and kind of maybe do a 2.0 uh, session in, in a future year. Um, I think there's a lot of those of us that are using these tools see that return um quantifying it and being able to describe it to others uh, maybe becomes a little bit more challenging um but getting the word out that this is not just 
it's not a game. It's not something we just, uh, you know, write random numbers down and, and try to have you know, the highest score. Uh, at the end of the day, all of all of these metrics, these tools that we're using, um, sure, there's an investment, but there's also um, a return and there's a you know, direct economic impact of, of these selection decisions based on on these breeding values. Yeah, and I think it's neat to see the implementation from what started as you know one example of a smaller flock and knowing that integrating that genetic technology was important all the way to those you know thousands of use producing females um knowing that that genetic technology is is important to grab onto and help in the progression of of that flock improvement uh one interesting thing to me when we more so on the the range individuals on that, that panel we we heard a lot about uh longevity especially on those terminal rams that are asked to go out and breed a pile of ewes and then come back alive. And I know the, the one gentleman um, had mentioned that they're going through their penorams multiple times a year just to look at body condition score, uh, how they're holding up by themselves. And if they're not making it uh, to call them out, sooner rather than later because they want rams that are sticking around for multiple breeding seasons and i think when that's the case even when you have thousands of ewes that you're trying to get bred to these terminal sires you know there's value i can justify spending significantly more on improved genetics when i know that my my investment uh, is going to be around for longer than a generation um so, you know, that was an interesting thing that I don't know that we have the environment that challenges sheep as extensively as what they do in the West. And it's just a reminder that either A, we're fortunate or or B, we have some limited, more limited natural selection occurring uh, in a lot of these sheep. So some that aren't made for it uh, live on for a while so so again well, it blows my just, mind like yeah. a lot of those use out west they they don't get supplemented uh they they find what they're going to eat and they make do and they get by and um it's not we're so accustomed to to supplementation like you know this time of year late gestation throw a little bit of feed to them let's throw a little bit of feed to them during lactation you know during breeding season and um, let's give them some feed and, and for us it's it's relatively easy to do um, it's just from a practicality standpoint, it's just physically not possible. Right. Um, you have that many sheep in the, the environment that you have them in. And it's incredible to me that those sheep function as well as they do, um, uh, given, given the challenges that, that they're presented with. And even in Tom's situation, you know, a heavy forage, you know, limited supplementation situation, you're still providing the feed to those ewes every day. Going out and, and opening that gate, you're still providing feed to those sheep as opposed to those sheep going out and and getting their feed. Um, it, it's it's just a whole different... I remember a couple of years ago, I showed someone from the West a picture of, of our sheep out grazing one of our pastures. And, and their first response was, oh, you must not supplement anything. Like those sheep are good year round. 
And I was like almost embarrassed to say, <laughs> no, yeah, I mean, yeah, we, we load them up a little bit. <laughs> yeah, we load them up with a pound and a half of, you know, four. The other thing to remember too, I mean, it's our grasses are are way wetter. Um, they're washed out. Um, you know, we can have a very lush green pasture and what appears to be a lot of forage. When we think about it on a dry matter basis, there's very little there. Um, so the sheep are eating a lot. Uh, they're probably peeing a lot. Uh, but they're really not getting much in the way of nutrients. And so it's it's kind of this, uh, I'm blanking on the term, um, you get this perception that that everything should be great and you shouldn't have any problems, uh, but you could actually have animals. I've seen cases where animals lose weight and become in pretty rough shape on pasture that you think they should be just fine on. Um, and it just, if you get rain for multiple days in a row and, or even, you know, a couple days, a day off, a couple days, a couple day off, um, you know, they may be eating to their heart's content and really not getting much in the way of substance. Yeah, and that's that's a great aspect. And the other thought is a lot of those ewes might be full of parasites. You know, limiting, it doesn't matter how much nutrition is going into them. It's not necessarily going towards improving body condition. But that was a really good, really good panel. Uh, thought it was a, a very diverse group of producers, both experienced and newer to the industry uh, and very representative of of where we're at and kind of where we've been one of the you touched on this one of the points that i cannot take credit for because i i missed it again i was quite distracted dur during that meeting um but one of the slides that dr lewis had so brad crowther's afterwards we were talking about um who was a member, one of those young members on that panel, we were talking about the, the aspect of heterosis and the female component. And so frequently, especially with Katahdin's uh, or any maternal breed, we think automatically to terminal sires. And that's like the one, the one benefit uh, automatic is, is hybrid vigor, heterosis, we're improving those carcass qualities. But we, we forget a lot of times the impact of having some of that diversity in, in the bloodline uh, on the female side, on the maternal side. And I believe it was a like a 12% bump is is the number he was yeah, talking so the, about. Um, it, it's the project is a number of years old now, but um, what what's published in the sheep production handbook? Um, which I believe to be still true today as, as best we know. Um, when you think about weight of lamb weaned per ewe exposed, so that that overarching metric of, of productivity um, that encompasses you know, fertility, number born, number weaned, survival, uh, lamb weaning weight, uh, milk production, all of that, um, you're you're north of 18% uh, in terms of heterosis. At at 50% inclusion or? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and so then the drop, like a... so his point was, um, we'll use the Katahdin example. It's not necessarily, say, a, a Katahdin Dorper cross, but his comment was, if you can identify that Katahdin Dorper ram and then keep daughters out of that cross on purebred Katahdin use, those daughters would then be 25% Dorper and 75% Katahdin, and then that still provides a bump you know from heterosis in those maternal traits uh, 
that shouldn't be overlooked in the commercial industry. So it, it doesn't even have to be the F1 that generates substantial economic value. Again, it's just something that in our terminal crosses, those are terminal animals and uh, end up going to slaughter ten, tends to be both males and females. But the the maternal side of it, it it's something that is probably underutilized uh, in a lot of our commercial operations. So, right, because you really capitalized it. It's it's a double whammy, or in a positive sense, um, right. because um, you're double dipping because you get the maternal heterosis and the individual heterosis. Those compound, um, and you you really see maximum benefit. Um, if I was truly a commercial producer and that was my goal. Um, and this is just a hypothetical example, but like a Dorper Katahdin F1 U crossed on a Texel Ram, or a, you know, depending if I was selling the ethnic market, a Texel Ram, if I wanted to take lambs to heavier market weights, maybe a Suffolk Ram. Um, I can only imagine what that that potential production system has um in terms of, of animal performance. Right. And and even from the aspect of getting those F1s in, I guess where my my mind went was the biggest question is, can I maintain parasite resistance or the other genetic items that I'm selecting for with EBVs? Can I make those selections on half of the pedigree in that F1? throw those into a genetic evaluation and then select the elite individuals from that set of progeny that still maintain my breeding objectives to then use in the commercial flock, just because then I know I'm not stepping backwards completely. It, it's a way to kind of maintain some of the, some of the integrity of that flock with, with the direction, but uh, right. It takes good it takes good purebreds to make good crossbreds. Right. Um, so you you can find those elite breeders and find the elite purebred animals and utilize those to to make those crossbred individuals. And then you're maximizing your chance of elite genetics being passed on to that F1. Yeah. And I think that's something that's overlooked. And we talked about it during the terminal sire discussions that we've had on here pretty frequently is not every Texel will produce elite crossbred lambs just because it is, you know, a certain breed does not mean that it possesses the phenotypic or, or genetics to uh, advance that lamb crop further than, than where it's already at. But no, that was a, the morning discussion was, was fantastic. Uh, went to lunch, broke for lunch, got to watch a, a number of uh, producers, I guess that was, was that Friday when producers were recognized? number of people were recognized. Yeah, that was Friday. That, the, that was Friday. Friday. So I, I'm, everything's running together. But, um, but yeah, so then the afternoon on that Thursday, uh, the production education and research committee met. And one of the interesting topics that... I hadn't really thought of, um, oh, attending in a in a serious fashion. Kind of, I was aware of what it was, and it stemmed out of 
a lot of the training and uh, preparation in Pennsylvania, uh, but the secure sheep and wool planning uh, meeting was, I thought, very interesting and uh, timely, and it's something we as producers need to be aware of and probably step up our game. Uh, I mentioned the the swine aspect of it because of ASF or African swine fever, and it's on our doorstep. And so those guys are are already prepared from not only that currently, but what they've run into in the past. Uh, and this is primarily in relation to FMD or foot and mouth disease, uh, because we know if that gets into the U.S., it's a ugly situation and essentially shuts everything down. Uh, and if that's the case, do we know what the protocol is as producers? We'll, we'll pick on Tom here because uh, he's been pretty quiet. But Tom, do you have a plan ready to go? If everything gets shut down, what you're going to end up having to do? Nope. None Neither do I. None whatsoever. <laughs> People talk about it, but as far as I know, like everything's just going to be quarantined and you're just stuck. Yeah. Yeah, and I do, I feel a, I have a little more advantage, again, seeing some of that insight from the swine industry. Being at a university, Andrew, are you guys mandated to have those implemented, those plans in place, ready to go? We don't have a plan right now. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Maybe well, we should. And I, I feel bad because it, it's been, uh, the training's been offered uh, a few times now, and there's another one coming up. Uh, I think in February or March, and unfortunately, uh, with my teaching schedule, uh, it seems to coincide every time there's a training offered. So I'd love to go. Uh, I think I think it's something that's needed, and um, I feel that that it would be beneficial to to attend one of those trainings. And uh, it just it hasn't worked out so far, but uh, hopefully one of these days. Yeah, and I think it's just a normal human reaction. It's not a fun thing to talk about. It's not. We're not discussing how to improve production and we're not discussing uh, the positive aspects or or even the challenging aspects of the industry that have a, a positive end result if we fix it. Uh, it's just a lot of negative content, but it's important content. And so I will you know, stress after sitting through that presentation, uh, certainly far less intimidating than what I assumed it would be uh, and something that we as producers, regardless of location, need to look into very seriously. Uh, I know they were discussing, Andrew, you mentioned those those centralized meetings, those official meetings. And then from there, I believe they're actually giving a stipend to those trained individuals to host meetings in their region uh, to to then get more producers signed up and and on board so i i think that's needed and um it's a pyramid scheme in a positive way you know nobody's getting rich off of this but it's how we can reach a lot of people so uh at least look into it if you're listening and i know it's not a fun topic but worthwhile so started with that and then uh we had a solar panel which i don't feel that we played on that name enough because it was a panel of speakers talking about running sheep under, there was a laugh from Tom, thankfully, uh, but you know, talking about sheep producers, 
running sheep under solar panels. And that's something we haven't talked about on the podcast. And maybe in 2024, we'll have some more in-depth discussion about uh, because it's something that is showing tremendous opportunity for our industry. And so had a, a really robust group of speakers, uh, Lexi Hain with LightSource BP, uh, offering both some solar grazing aspects and then some of the, the solar energy industry aspects of, of grazing solar. Eric Bronson coming out of Virginia, who, as he put it, would not be in the sheep industry if it weren't for solar grazing. I think that's a really neat story. Uh, Julie Bishop was also uh, on there from New Jersey uh, and got to see her quite a bit at a lot of Penn State extension events. And then uh, Arlo Hark from Minnesota. Uh, so again, a lot of different locations, a lot of different experiences. Uh, and then Nick Armantrout gave a really good educational presentation to start to kind of get everybody on the same page, get the room on the page of what it is, where we're at in the U.S. Um, and and the one kind of takeaway that was kind of fun to see was America leads the world in solar grazing, which is not something that we talk about a lot of times uh, in something as Americans, we get very excited about to be leading the charge in something and, you know, to have intellectual property over something else, but uh, something where we are in, in first place and uh, very much committed to on both the ag side and, or the sheep side, I should say, and the, the solar industry side, something that's really gaining some speed and some traction. So I uh, have to thank Lynn Farmeyer and, and Lisa Weeks for setting up that panel, but uh, that solar panel and uh, good discussion there. And then we led into um, the, the milk discussion, the colostrum discussion that a fellow grad student of ours uh, from WVU, Kelsey Bentley, uh, discussed in depth and gave a wonderful presentation and certainly had interest. So it was, that was a good meeting. I don't think I'm leaving anybody out, at least the ones that I sat through um, in that. I think that was the whole afternoon discussion, but yeah, it was, it was good, good discussion. Again, you wish that we could have just doubled up rooms and, and let people listen to the genetic session, let people listen to the, the perk sessions, but it was a lot of info, a lot of different meetings to sit through in in the afternoon there on Thursday. Yeah, on, over on the in the genetics room, um, you know, we the afternoon session, um, we started off Tom Murphy um, with he works at US Mark. He's a sheep geneticist. Um, he gave a great talk on selection indexes, um, what goes into them. Um, and you know productivity indexes versus economic indexes, and and some of the differences, and uh, what indexes we have available currently. So that was a it kind of another one of those kind of back to the basics type lectures on uh, you know what what's kind of the foundation of all of this. Uh, we had a great update from our young guns uh, panel. Uh, lots of young producers um, that met last fall to discuss some research priorities for our industry and where we need to go in the future. Uh, so we got an update from them. And then uh, 
After that, uh, Dr. Lewis's students shared uh, some work they've been doing on the the GEMS project, which many of you uh, may have heard of. Uh, we wrapped up the afternoon session with updates from the ARS uh, stations, the researchers that are working with sheep projects um, at uh, at Dubois, the sheep experiment station at US Mark, and at the Boonville, Arkansas uh, location uh, there uh, in the southern region. So a uh, great afternoon of genetics talks um, and uh, lots of encouraging things happening there. And I should say that for anybody that's interested in these topics and kind of just skimmed over what was discussed, those presentations will be housed on that ASI website. Uh, there was also another group there, I believe coming out of California, that uh, was filming everything. And those will be available here in another couple months, is at least what I was told. I, um, I wasn't given an exact timeline. Some point in the future. So Okay. So I was told from people that were being interviewed that it would be, you know, it wouldn't be a year later. Mm -hmm. Who knows? But once we find out where those are being housed, certainly share that with the group here. And uh, I definitely want to urge, as Andrew mentioned earlier, uh, if you're not a member of that state sheep association, join and then find out if that state sheep association is tied to ASI and paying those dues into the national organization. And if you have the time and uh, ability to make it out to a convention, even from the, the networking aspect of seeing people that maybe you've only seen a profile picture on Facebook, uh, yeah, that's fun. That's the whole reason it exists, I think, and also a lot of good content there. So absolutely, it's a good trip. Absolutely, I'm gonna have to go to an ASI convention here at some point or another. Next year, Scottsdale. It's gonna be to be a beautiful weather. Yeah. <laughs> so, yep, we're running up on our time, and thank you for listening to another episode of the Grazing Sheep Podcast. Uh, Got a Facebook page you can get on there and like and follow and uh, leave some comments. You can also reach out to me at bigtomferkins at gmail.com. It's been uh, good listening to you guys tell about all that was happening there. And uh, Andrew, it's always good to have you on. Maybe we'll get you on again here pretty soon. Yeah, thanks for having me. Always enjoy it. So we'll catch up with you guys later. All right. Talk to you later. We'll talk to you soon. All right. Bye.